This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The movement is shaken in the AP Top 25 and my own Top 25 with seven Top 25 teams taking an L on Saturday. None bigger than USC. Will they make the playoff? Let's talk about it. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, kid folk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get this podcast. And I sorely appreciate all of you who are watching this live and direct and in color. Now, let's talk about the AP Top 25, and then we'll get into my Top 25 as we're at the halfway point of this year, 2023 college football season. And the top 25 looks kind of sort of like what we might think it would have looked like at preseason and really not at the same time. And off the rip, you see they got Georgia at number one. You see they got Michigan at number two. All right, I'm gonna get into that just a little bit, but even further down, Penn State is getting penalized for covering the spread against UMass. Spread was 45 and a half. They put 63 up. They did not allow any points. Oklahoma slides on a week where they're off because they played their OU Texas game last week and Washington played its OU Texas game this week. Already, I got some bones to pick with the AP. But again, I want to start at the top here. I got Michigan as the number one team in the country, and I've had them for about three weeks here. Georgia is number one team in the country, according to the AP, because I guess they are just bored, because Georgia seems to be bored. Put another way, Michigan beat Indiana 52 to 7. Spread was 32 and a half. Okay, all right. Nicely done. Georgia. Beat Vanderbilt 37 to 20. The spread was 32 and a half. Now, you could tell me that Georgia doesn't care about teams that don't have a number next to their name. And I'm saying, cool, then they don't need to be the number one team in the country. Full stop. The teams that don't have a number next to their name should be the teams that you absolutely stop a mud hole in and walk dry. All right. But it's bigger than that, it's deeper than rap. It ain't that you gave up 201 yards, Georgia defense, to something called Ken Seals. No disrespect to Vandy, but you understand my point here. It's that Michigan gave up seven and then scored 52 unanswered and has a counter for everything that you want to throw at them. And when they make mistakes, and they do not make them, according to P.J. Fleck, who also got 52 put up on his skull just last week, they got this guy named J.J. McCarthy that can just make them right. He is doing the thing that I demand of a playmaker. He is making a bad play into a positive play. 
He is running away from defenders. He is able to find people open when he's supposed to. And then when they're on schedule, because they're rarely off, they got this outstanding offensive line that can mishmash anybody in front of them while thunder and lightning in the form of Blake Gorham and Donovan Edwards can run all the way through you. And they're still developing playmakers. We know that Roman Wilson is a dude. He's going to be challenging for the Bolitnikoff Award. He'll probably be a Bolitnikoff Award semifinalist here in just a couple of weeks. But they're developing guys like Tyler Moore, who had an outstanding punt return in this game, and also had four catches, 54 yards. They're developing guys like Colston Loveland, who I thought was going to have to step up in a big way, but I didn't expect him to have a bigger role at tight end than Eric All had last year. Catching three passes, 80 yards, and a TD against Indiana. Michigan is the most complete team in the sport. They are also doing what we demand of number one teams in the country. They are undefeated, and they are dominating their competition. I'm going to respect that. If Auburn was doing that, I would respect that. If Louisville was doing that, I would respect that. It's got nothing to do with Michigan. Matter of fact, ask Michigan fans how much they like me. All right? That's where we're at right now. Okay? But they got the best team in the sport, certainly the best team ahead of the Mason-Dixon line. And I think that if they got into a national championship game against Georgia, they win that game. Such is what I've seen from Georgia so far. Take it a little bit further down. The Big Ten East is so top-heavy, man. I just, I wish that we talked about the Big Ten East the way that we used to talk about the SEC West. Because it wasn't that long ago that the SEC West was doing exactly what the Big Ten East is doing. And nobody in the SEC was shut up about it. Okay, so I'm not going to shut up about the Big Ten East because Michigan is the number one team in the country to me, number two to the AP. Then you got Ohio State, number three for both of us, right? And then you've got Penn State, who I got at number five here, and they have at number seven. That's the top three teams in one division in one conference, okay? Now, we're going to see some moving and shaking in there because that is the way of the divisions, right? You got to play in your conference and you got to play the best teams, which is why I'm not really getting mad about Michigan having played a soft schedule up until they got to play something called Penn State or something called Ohio State. The same difference for Penn State and Ohio State, because they have done what the SEC has done for the last 17 years, dog. And that's quite frankly, put cupcakes on the schedule and say, hey, our league is that good. We will have to face a top five, a top 10 opponent in our league because it is that deep. Why put somebody on the schedule that might be able to beat us? There is no win in Michigan scheduling a Fresno State. They beat them. They're supposed to. They lose them. They're giving themselves an opportunity to be exited out of the playoff for no good reason. All right. So now that we got Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, and that whole conversation is before us, I find it ridiculous that we aren't already hyping Ohio State, Penn State. I mean, it's Sunday afternoon for me, and I'm already ready for Saturday because that game is really going to be a college football playoff quarterfinal, okay? It's going to be real difficult for the loser of that game to make the college football playoff. Not impossible, but extremely difficult. You really need to win this game to give yourself an opportunity to even do what Ohio State did last year, which is lose the game, not play in the Big Ten championship, and make the college football playoff. But it's really going to depend on how that game goes. It goes a lot like OU Texas or Washington, Oregon. You could see something going there. But again, Penn State took care of business. They're doing what I asked them to do to remain a top five team. I'm not going to penalize them for scoring 63 and giving up zero just because they don't have a marquee win. Precisely because they got to play Ohio State on Saturday. So whether you like it or not, 
the ranking for Penn State and Ohio State is likely to change come next week, okay? Because one of those two is going to knock off a top 10 team. And if it's Penn State, it's on the road. If it's Ohio State, it's the best team you played, not named Notre Dame, who, oh, by the way, might not be as bad as we thought. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. So I don't particularly care about Washington being ahead of Penn State there. I just I think it's discourteous to Penn State because you're looking at that team going, yeah, we'd uh we like what Washington did late against Oregon. And uh, we know you won your game, and we know you won all your games, but we're going to dock you because you didn't play Washington last week. You didn't play Oregon last week. I, 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 enough, man. And this is why some people are writing with saying, we shouldn't take Swankin seriously till November. Yeah, but where's the fun in that, all right? So Ohio State's strength is, again, going to be on display in this game. And, and how long has it been since we've said the Ohio State strength is the defense? All right? Whatever Jim Knowles has done in year two is working because this bend don't break. We're not going to allow explosive plays to score TDs. It's working for them. Like I was looking at this and nobody has scored more than 17 on Ohio State all year in a single outing. As everybody agrees, this ain't the best Ryan Day offense that we've ever seen. And they're still building toward what they might be. At any given time, they've had Travion Henderson and Emeka Ibuka hurt. That's two of your four best playmakers, right? The offensive line is still trying to figure out what it's doing. Kyle McCord is just about to get his eighth start of the entire of his entire college football career, all while Marvin Harrison Jr. remains Marvin Harrison Jr. That dude's silly, right? Just, just silly. And as much as people want to say that Notre Dame's offense didn't do much against USC, I'm going to say that Notre Dame put up 48 on USC. This is the same Notre Dame that Ohio State held in check in South Bend. The same place where Notre Dame put 48 up on USC. I think it's a good football team. And I think it will continue to show that it's a good football team. But they got to get a win at the shoe for people to really start to believe that they can go into the game and win it, not just show up, right? Because right now, I've said it, Michigan's number one team in the country. And right now, I can't find a fault in who they are and what they represent. And if they do it the way they know how to do it, that's a tough team to win against. It's a tough team to win against. So let's go from the Big Ten conversation at the top to the Pac-12 conversation at the top because on this with Lincoln Riley, I agree, and I was saying it before he did, the Pac-12 is the best conference in football, okay? It's the best conference in football, which says a lot about what Notre Dame is or isn't. I think we're still writing the book on what this team is going to be, and with two losses, they're getting to play faster and freer. They're not trying to play to win national championships. Now they're playing for that pride. And you could see that against SC. They took a lot of pleasure in handing USC its first L. One more L, and SC is not going to make the college football playoff, but this is not the end of the road for them. Now, I think the other thing to say about USC here is we saw the worst performance by a Lincoln-Riley offense ever as he's head coach. This is a stat that producer Tyler unearthed. 4.1 yards per play for USC versus Notre Dame. That is the lowest yards per play for any Lincoln-Riley offense at Oklahoma or USC. I said last night, I will repeat again, we saw Caleb Williams play the worst game of his career against Notre Dame. 199 pass yards, three interceptions, all in the first half, even put the ball on the floor once. We're not likely to see that. And it's not as if, for once, USC's defense lost them the game. 
It was really USC's offense playing, again, the worst football that a Lincoln-Riley football team has ever played that lost them the game. You had a defense that came to play, a defense that couldn't get sacks, sacked Caleb Williams six times, forced five turnovers. You got the special teams play. You got the kickoff return for touchdown from Jadarian Price that really just salted away this game for Notre Dame. Any sort of rhythm or any sort of movement that seemed that was coming for USC was just put away right then and there. And then Xavier Watts just had the game of his life. Like he, Athena looked at Xavier Watts and said, I'm going to grant you your Aristea right here and now, young man. Aristea, for some of y'all that didn't study for the PhD in English, Athena can give you this ability to vanquish your enemy if she deems you are worthy. And usually the ways in which you deem you are worthy is you are near death and you have sacrificed all for the sake of winning this singular battle. So she says, you know what? I'm gonna give you that. I'm gonna let you go vanquish everybody in front of you this one time. And what I love most about Aristea is she ain't got to give it to you. You know how Vikings, they die, they go to Valkyrie, uh, or the Valkyries carry them off to Valhalla. If they do right, that ain't guaranteed by Athena. She'll let you just out there, just die. She didn't do that with Xavier Watts. She said, nah, dog, I'm gonna let you have not one, but two interceptions. I'm gonna let you pass six tackles. I'm also gonna let you pick up this fumble and return it for a touchdown against SC. Steve Troy. I don't know if you get fired up by that, but I get fired up by that because I'm that type. Classic Greek, classic Shakespeare. That's up my alley. Now, since I'm on USC, I'm going to go ahead and point out here in the AP that they are at number 18. And you know what? Taking a look at my rankings, that's I got them a little bit higher than that. I got them at 15. But suffice it to say, the ranking for USC doesn't really matter right now because USC still got a ridiculously difficult schedule that if they go through this, Utah, Washington, Oregon, UCLA, and they win, and then they win the Pac-12 championship game, a one-loss Pac-12 champion USC probably is the only team that the college football playoff committee might give side-eye, but that ain't got nothing to do with the Pac-12. It's got everything to do with Lincoln Riley and what his teams have done historically in the college football playoff, which is not just get beat, but get beat in awful, awful ways. Two of those just got stomped out. One of those, you did it to yourself, squib kicking up 31-14 with just a couple of seconds left in the first half. I will never, ever forget that day. I will remember it forever. It is seared in my brain because that was the national championship Oklahoma was supposed to win. And it seems that Lincoln Riley is still squib kicking up like he did against Arizona a couple weeks ago. And he's still telling folks that this team is right there, like clockwork, halfway through the year, Oklahoma. Takes a loss against somebody they probably shouldn't take a loss to. This year's USC. Okay? When he says, hey, we're all right there. I feel it with this team. If the offense would have done what the offense normally does, we'd probably win this game. Probably don't get 48 put up on our skull because the defense didn't let us down this time. And I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this part. I remember this part. And Oklahoma fans are feeling a little bit of schadenfreude, right? Because we were on this train until he decided that he wanted to move out to the Mecca. And I'm reminded of this quote that he gave to CBS Sports. I walked into four playoffs, and I've never had a better team than maybe the third-best roster among those four teams. Every other year, we were four out four. We had really good rosters, but they weren't the same. I can't imagine that there could be a setting that we could build a better roster than we can here, here being USC. I submit to you. Look at the four best teams in college football right now. My rankings and the APs. Tell me which rosters are better than USC's and tell me which roster you would expect USC to beat. 
All right, I'm going to leave that one with you as we prepare to find out what USC is really made of because, again, it's a great year to have your one loss be out of conference against Notre Dame in the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 has its gloves on. Those dudes, like 1 through 12, have come for a fist fight. And I kind of hate it for them because they're going to suffer what the Big 12 does when the Big 12 is good, which is y'all just going to knock each other out. But you know what? Whoever rises to the top, they're going to earn that opportunity to get in there. So right now, you really got to wait and see. But it feels like this is the year the Pac-12 gets its team in there, whether it's one loss or not. They're going to get a team in there. I I mentioned Oregon, Washington, USC still got to play. So I got Washington at number six, respecting the win against Oregon, but also understanding Oregon was every bit ready to win that football game, if not for Dan Lanning. But also looking at what Washington did, I asked for Michael Penix Jr. to show me who Husky fans said he was, which is a Heisman Trophy winner. And the difference between a great quarterback and a Heisman Trophy winner is exactly what he showed in winning time. He had an opportunity to lose this football game on the sideline, for which I would not have thrown at his feet. But you know what? Dan Lanning bet it against him. And I say that because you can say he bet it on his team when he went for a fourth down instead of punting the football that third time. I say he's betting that his defense beats Michael Penix Jr. Because that's what you have to say in case you don't get that fourth down. So Michael Penix Jr. saw that and said, bet, give me the ball back with 2.11 left to play and watch what I do with it. And what did he do with it? Without Jalen McMillan, his second best wide receiver, he went down the field and he got them six. He got them the lead. He put it back on Bo Nix's shoulders. And what we get? We get Washington with the biggest win for any Washington football team in some time. And quite literally, one of the biggest wins in this rivalry because the stakes could not have been higher. 5-0, 5-0, the first time that each had been 5-0, the first time that both had been top 10 teams going into this matchup. It's meaningful. You feel like this team that wins this game is in the driver's seat for the Pac-12 championship, and Washington came up with the goods, mostly because they kept Oregon's offense in check. Shout out Chuck Morrell and William Inge, right? But also because they got that dude playing quarterback named Michael Penix Jr. I think right now, this is just the first of what is going to be, again, a thrilling set of games for both Washington and Oregon. And I mentioned USC because both Washington and Oregon have to go through SC, Oregon State, who looks about it, about it, Utah, who also looks about it, about it, and Washington State, who two weeks ago I thought was about it, about it, now lost it to UCLA and Arizona. I don't know what they are except a toughed out because I don't think that there's any part of Washington State that looks like losing the Apple Cup to this Washington team or any Washington team. So if Washington is already kind of like SC, we might be able to handle, but that Washington State, when things just go real weird, <laughs> that's the one that might actually make them a little bit terrified. But again, you walk through that schedule, you go undefeated, you might end up being the number two team if, uh, in the CFP if Michigan is undefeated, Ohio State undefeated, whatnot. But if that's a one-loss team at the Big Ten, there's one loss team in the SEC, there's no reason to believe that an undefeated Pac-12 champion isn't the one seed going into the college football playoff. And there are worse positions to be in, let me tell you. Like being number four at Oklahoma in 2019. Okay, I'm telling you, the seeding matters. You're not going to think it matters, but it does matter. So the Pac-12 we know is kind of stacked. You look at my rankings. I got Washington, Oregon. I got Oregon State in there, Utah in there, SC in there. But now you see that team at number four that was off this week. I got that team number four 
that was off this week because they're undefeated. And I'm not going to dock an undefeated team who just beat Texas in the Cotton Bowl convincingly for having an off week. Now, Oklahoma gets Central Florida, also coming off an off week given they get back on it. But, this, I mean, it's it's simple for OU. If you finish the second half like you did the first half, you're the number one team in the country. Okay? You're going to have an opportunity to probably play Texas again in the Big 12 title game unless somebody shows us some version of the Big 12 that we haven't yet because right now it feels real top-heavy. It feels like we're destined for a rematch there. You double up Texas, and this time you leave no doubt 20 miles down the road from the Cotton Bowl at Jerry World, it's going to be real difficult for people to look at a Brent Venables football team and not expect that football team to be great. Again, it's going to play on the minds of the college football playoff selection committee that they have put Lincoln Riley into a college football playoff, and he has done nothing but lose. And they put Brent Venables into a college football playoff, and you can count national championships. Okay? It matters. It really does. And the way in which you built that football team also matters. Brent has always valued defense over offense. So did Bob Stoops. Lincoln Riley's an offensive coach. Just going to mention that both Brent Venables and Bob Stoops have won national championships. And the only thing that the recent 40-year-old at USC has not done is that. So Oklahoma, take care of your business. Continue to go about it and ride that dude named Dylan Gabriel whenever you can. I hate the way that they run this war speed offense because I hate nothing more than 15-second three and outs. But if that's the offense, that's the offense because the defense has been playing out of its mind. Maybe there's some magic. Dare I say sooner magic, as much as I kind of hate that term. Dare I say sooner magic in Norman. I don't say sooner magic because that's that's the king's thing. And people that say sooner magic usually strike me as real lame. And now I've said it three times. So take with that what you will. All right. That is how I see my top 25, the AP's top 25. Lots of moving and shaking to be done. We're two weeks away from the college football playoff selection committee putting out its first set of top 25 rankings for which we will be doing live shows right here following their reveals on Tuesday evenings. But now that we are at the halfway point of the season, I think it is time to do my favorite activity. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, which is to tell you who I think the top five Heisman contenders are in the sport. I love the Heisman Trophy. I really do. And I love the dudes that win the Heisman Trophy. I really do. I think that Heisman voters are sometimes out of their minds. Now that I've said that, let's start at number five and go all the way up to one. So at number five, I've got the Martian. The Martian that has made Columbus, Ohio home. That is Marvin Harrison Jr., wide receiver extraordinaire, number 18 in the scarlet and gray, because that dude is somebody different. If we're going to see a wide receiver become the first to win the Heisman since Devontae Smith, who was the first to do it since Desmond Howard, it's going to be that guy because he is that important to one of the best teams in college football. Again, the best player on the best team in the sport usually wins the Heisman Trophy. He's also on pace for 1,200 receiving yards, 62 catches, and 10 TDs. Dare I say, if he has a game in the game, I'm probably going to be way ahead on that, and nobody's going to remember that I said Marvin Harrison Jr. is a Heisman finalist in October. But you know what? That's why you're here, so you can carry that message forward. Now, number four on the list, Drake May, New North Carolina quarterback. I think that dude's got a really great game that translates to the NFL. And I was slow to this, all right? Like, producer Tyler 
and I would have it out very early on, just very early on, about I didn't see it with Drake May. And he's like, RJ, that dude is probably going to go two, if not one, in the NFL draft, right? Caleb Williams said you have to win the Heisman Trophy. You don't understand what I'm saying here. But Drake May's got the goods because he can move it and he can sling it. He's on pace to also be outstanding. That dude's probably going to end up with 3,500 and I think it was 38 TDs and maybe 12 INTs. Like he's erratic, but erratic in a good way. You will ride or die with him. And now that you got a Marion Hampton rushing for 197 against Miami, you got Tez Walker out there to catch passes for him. It feels like it's within reach for an undefeated North Carolina. Hey, hello, right? Could be North Carolina versus Florida State undefeated ACC title game, in which case I'm leaning more and more toward Florida State there. Now, number three on the list, Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy. I think J.J. is the most important player on a very, very, very deep Michigan football team. And against Indiana in particular, I got to see him do some things that make me believe he ought to be a Heisman candidate. And that is when they were rarely making a mistake or when a play call was about to get them killed, that dude would run away from guys that I know are fast. That dude would make plays with his arm that I know that only a few in this sport and a couple in the NFL can make. You got Donovan Edwards behind Blake Corum. Blake Corum hasn't broken out in the way that we expected him to, but again, he's coming off a knee injury, and you want to get Donovan Edwards more involved. He's also spreading the ball around really well, and he's not doing too much. I don't see J.J. doing what he did even last year, which is forcing the football where he shouldn't. He had that one game against Bowling Green State where he threw interceptions, but he hadn't thrown any since. He's on pace to be a 3K, 30 TD, ho-hum, 6 INT quarterback, but that's the kind of guy that is a Heisman finalist. Now, he comes up with the goods in a meaningful way against Penn State again, right? And then in a meaningful way against Ohio State, you can see what I'm doing here. Number two on the list, Oklahoma quarterback Dylan Gabriel. All right, so this one I had to sit and think about for a while because, again, what do you do in winning time is how I begin judging the Heisman Trophy. Everybody's won football games. Everybody's the best player on their best team. But when the game is on the line, what did you do, right? What's the, what's the quote that George Patton gave? In the Great War, World War II, what did you do? Now, we don't look at OU Texas, I should say, you don't look at OU Texas the way I look at OU Texas. I get that. But you have to look at a guy who had to go down the field and go get six and see the way he purported himself on that last drive. And again, I go to... You're at the goal line, and I'm yelling at the TV, spike the football on this play, spike the football on this play. And that dude took the rush, let it get to him, found Nick Anderson wide open in the end zone like he was standing there the whole time. I get goosebumps thinking about it. That is a Heisman Trophy winner. That's what you do. Now, it's on him to finish the job. Now, he's also on pace to be a 3,600 passing yard dude with 30 total TDs, right? Maybe six INTs. Like, the numbers will be the numbers, right? That's the thing. All these guys will have numbers. But will all these guys have moments? Aiden Hutchinson made himself into a Heisman finalist in one game against Ohio State. You're going to need that. And that is exactly what Michael Penix Jr. did against Oregon. That is why he's number one on the list. I asked for this. I said, show me you're a Heisman finalist. And Michael Penix Jr., with his story, his two blown ACLs, his being 23 years old, coming back for this season, is once again on pace to finish with 4,400 yards passing, 
40 passing TDs, just a handful of INTs, and that dude makes them go in a way that, frankly, it's been a while since I've seen a quarterback be this dominant at the position. Now, he got a lot of help from Dylan Johnson against Oregon. I just did not expect that. But not having Jalen McMillan, needing to get the best out of Giles Jackson, needing to get the best out of Roma Dunze, I got it for nine, man. Nine's a dog. I mean, they Huskies, but you get what I'm saying here. I think what he did against Oregon is going to be referenced over and over again for the second half of the season. 22 of 37 for 302, four TDs, one pick. I mean, he leads the uh, FBS in passing with 2,300 passing yards through six games, 20 TDs. There's going to be some competition for him along the way because guys are going to do some outstanding things in the second half when November comes around and we really, really begin to get to see what these guys are made of in pressure situations. But I don't know that there was more pressured situation than the one we saw Washington, Oregon. Far be it for me to, to make this, but I'm going to. Washington, Oregon on Saturday was bigger than OU, Texas on Saturday because of its significance to the sport. We knew that Texas was good. We were trying to figure out if Oklahoma was. We know that Oklahoma was good. We knew going into that game that Oregon and Washington were good. We agreed on this. We also knew going into that game that Oregon and Washington were two of the three best teams in the entire conference, Pac-12, which is the deepest conference and the best conference in the sport right now. We didn't know how the Washington Huskies were going to react to an aggressive Dan Lanning, a guy that, for his faults, wants it as bad as any football coach ever does on a sideline, does everything he can to fire up his guys. And all Kalen DeBoer did was put faith in the Michael Pittis Jr., Ryan Grubb, Chuck Morrell, and William Inge, and watch those guys go to work. It is a remarkably cool story. And I would like nothing more than to see Michael Penix Jr. finish it. He's the kind of guy that we think about when we think about college football. Don't know what his NFL career would be or is. But when you know what he has done at Indiana, I remember interviewing him at Big Ten Media Days when he was quarterback in Indiana. And you see what he has fought back from. And you see what it meant to him to bring that win to Seattle and his parents on the sideline, rushing the field, all of it. That's what the sport is for. So I got him at number one. And we'll see how this all shakes out. But right now, this is the way I see it, one through five, for our Heisman Trophy contenders. We will be back right here on Wednesday with a preview of the Week 8 slate of games highlighted by Ohio State, Penn State, and, oh, yeah, Tennessee, Alabama, which ought to be hell on wheels and a whole lot of fun. All right. Number one college football show leads the screening are Jack, uh, excuse me, Jack Coakley and Torn Westfall. Kiara Santana is our production assistant. She makes us better, puts special in our special teams. We got Chaz Boulay sending in the signals tonight. Now is Owen on the live switches. Javion Duncan is our social media maven. He makes sure everybody sees the cake we bake. Catherine Cordaggi is seeing it all from the booth. And lead producer Tyler Wojak calls the plays from the field. The play snaps on my clap until we see y'all on Tuesday. Stay low. Keep those feet driving. Deuces. <laughs>